Uh, Father, we just thank you so much for your, uh, your many blessings upon us, and one of them is that we get to study your word, and we just pray for the anointing of your Holy Spirit to be upon us tonight, and Lord, that you would be blessed by all that we say and do tonight. Minister to our hearts, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a good friend of mine. As a matter of fact, you guys have met him because he's come up here one time. He's a friend that uh, was very instrumental in leading us to faith in Christ. And, and uh, he had his Uncle Clyde. And Uncle Clyde and he were like only a couple of years apart. Uh, and uh, Clyde, still to this day, is probably the, the baddest dude I've ever known in my life. I mean, I've never seen anybody whip him. And he was one of those kind of guys that he literally beat a man until he didn't move. When he quit moving, then he'd stop. He, he was as mean as a two-headed snake. Well, he also had a bad problem with drinking. And uh, Clyde found Jesus, ended up in a little Pentecostal church. And uh, Clyde kept having this problem where he had fall back into drunkenness. So all the old ladies of the church brought him up front, and they laid hands on him, and they prayed for him. And they got that good Pentecostal, you know, going on, and they started hitting on him like this and praying for him and all this kind of stuff. And story is that old Clyde crawled out of that church on his hands and knees. And I, I tell everybody, I, I, you know, a bunch of old ladies did something to Clyde I'd never seen any man ever be able to do. <laughs> so as you can imagine, I was scared to death when Jane come walking up here. <laughs> I thought for sure that um, mm, this is going to be it. All right. We're in Galatians chapter 3 tonight. <laughs> oh man uh, you know eventually Clyde did, he quit drinking you know so praise be to the Lord for that but uh, I always found that so amusing when I was told that story I just said I can't believe it man um, we're going to pick it up uh, in verse 15 tonight is where we're going to start and uh, Lord willing we're going to go ahead and get through the rest of the chapter by way of reminder uh, Paul is defending faith over the law. And uh, he's bringing out the various things about how the law was given and how it works and what's necessary uh, in regards to the law, even in our own lives. And you remember the problem was in the churches in Galatia that there were Judaizers that were coming in and they were telling those Gentiles who had received Christ that in order to really be saved, now what they needed to do was to be circumcised. And uh, as you can imagine, that'd scare any guy half to death. Uh, but anyways, not only that, but also the keeping of the law, period. You know, the, the, the dietary laws, the, the feast, the, the Sabbath, you know, all these different things. And so Paul is explaining to them that there is no value in that as, in regards to salvation. That salvation is through faith alone and not through the law. And in these next few verses, he lays out this great case as to why that is true. Bringing about uh, the uh, presenting to us the fact that the, the promise was given by faith 400 years before the law was given. And how the law cannot nullify the promise. And he, he uses some great examples in here as to why that is true 
and, and how that applies and how we can apply it even in our own lives as well. So in verse 15, he says, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. So the first thing that Paul is talking about here, he's, like I said, he's talking about the covenant that was made between Abraham and God. Actually, God and Abraham, Abraham didn't have too much to do with it. It was all on God's part, right? And, and Paul is saying here, he says, look, he says, it, it just it, looking at it from the general terms of the culture that we live in today, this is what Paul would be saying. You know, you have to remember that the Roman culture was very, uh, very legalistic in that they put a lot of value into law and the courts and these kinds of things. And so Paul is going to, he's referring to that here when he says, I speak in the manner of men. In other words, I'm bringing this up as an example that even in the contracts, the covenants that are made amongst men, you know, in our culture today, that it is con uh, yet it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. A covenant is binding, and the covenant remains even though the law came, it could not nullify or change the covenant. Just like if you have a will, it cannot be changed without going through the proper court. So in other words, Paul is saying you can't just bring something in and change it. You, as a matter of fact, you, you may even have had experience with this personally or at least known somebody else that when somebody dies, that there's, a, there's people contesting the will because it doesn't divide up the way that they want it to. But yet, that is binding. You can't just because, well, I want this, then, okay, well, we'll change the, the will. It is actually a binding document in court, and it has to be changed only by the conservator and those that would be participating in it. The will itself really can't be changed once the person has died. But they can make some changes in how they want to divide that up, if it's agreeable amongst the parties. But Paul is bringing that out. Even in their day, it was that same same way that it couldn't just be that something else would come in and it would nullify the agreement that was made previously turn over to genesis chapter 15 we're going to read through verses 1 through 18 this is this is the covenant that god made with abraham in verse 1 it says after these things the word of the lord came to abram in a vision saying do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Uh, yeah, one, yeah, one is in my house, is born is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And of course, he was talking about Ishmael when Paul said, or when Abram said, you know, this one is my heir. And God saying, nope, that's not going to be the one. And it's, it's wonderful in Romans, you know, Paul makes this wonderful comparison as one of the, of the promise, the son of promise and the son of the flesh which Ishmael was, and that's why God said, no, that's not going to be the one, because this is the one, it's the one of promise. 
There will be one that will come from your own body shall be your heir. And then he brought him outside and said, look now toward the heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord and he accounted him it to him for righteousness. And then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? And so he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And then he brought all, the, all these to him and cut them in two and uh, down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. And then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go down to your father in peace, your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass, when the sun went down, it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I, give, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river of uh, the river Euphrates. And so this is a covenant that God made with Abram based upon his faith. God says, look, look at the stars. You see all those? I'm going to give you descendants that are as numerous as that. And we, we lose a lot of appreciation for that around here. I, I love to look at the stars. Oftentimes, we come home at night. My wife's always saying, would you please come in the house? Because I'm standing out, standing out in the driveway, and I'm looking up. I'm trying to see as many stars as I can. I remember the first time I ever got to a place to where the stars were so visible and so plentiful that, I mean, it, it was absolutely overwhelming. I was at the White Cone Navajo Reserva uh, Indian Reservation in White Cone, Arizona. Uh, high elevation, zero light around there, and I could see the Milky Way with the naked eye. It was incredible, absolutely incredible. And I'm thinking that Abram probably had that same vision, that when he looked up, that he saw the Milky Way with the naked eye. And can you imagine what it would be for a man of his age and Sarah of her age to believe God that he was going to fulfill the promise that Abram's descendants would be as numerous as that when he had none. That's faith. And that is the basis which it tells us that it was accounted to him for righteousness because he believed God seeing the obstacle and the impossibility of it but believing that God was greater and that he could perform what he promised that he would. That was the basis of relationship and covenant between God and Abraham. Abram at this point, his name, name later will be changed to Abraham. But the, the fact is, is that it's all about faith. And that's what Paul is bringing home here. That it's not about the law, which will come as it tells us here uh, in a minute. 
over 400 years later. That law didn't nullify the agreement and the basis upon which that covenant was made. You, you know, I always like to point out here that in, in the Eastern culture, it was not uncommon at all that when two men were going to make a covenant with one another, they would go through this process, that they would take animals and they would divide them in half, separate them, and that they would stand at one end, they would hold hands, and they would walk between those animals, they'd get to the other end, and they'd look at one another and they'd say, and the Lord do so unto me if I do not fulfill my covenant with you. It was pretty serious. And you notice here that Abram could not be a part of that because God knew that he could not hold up his end of a covenant. That it had to be all about God. God made a covenant with Abram. It was not a covenant between God and Abram because Abram had nothing to do but believe God. And that was it. And you see the fire and the smoke that walked down between the animals. And it's that, that clear indication that God was making a covenant with himself for Abram's behalf. And not only Abram's behalf, but our behalf as well. And Paul will point that out as we're going through this. In verse 16, it says, now Abram and his seed were, uh, were the promises made. Now to Abram and Abraham, <laughs> I, I, I wish they hadn't changed his name. I don't know what's going on here. I'm all confused. Uh, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And so, you're, if you've read through the book of Romans or studied the book of Romans, Paul points it out that, that those who are truly of faith are of the seed of Abraham, that there are not many seeds, just as there, there are not many ways to get to God. There's only one. And it really is through that faith and, and through the seed of Abraham, which is Christ himself. And there is no other way. Uh, and that even in Paul's day and before that, there were many who considered themselves to be of the seed because they were of natural birth as sons of Abraham in that they were Jews. But yet Paul points out once again in Romans that those that are truly Jews are those who are of faith. Not just because their nationality says that they were Jews. Not because they were born of, of Jew, uh, Jewish parentage. A true Jew is one who is born of faith. No matter Old Testament or New, it doesn't matter. It's still the same. Verse 17, and this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. So it was established when God made that covenant with Abram that it would be on the basis of faith that that's where the seed would come from and that would be a part of and that there was nothing that was going to be able to change that. Now the Judaizers, they felt that it did. They felt that the law superseded that. That the law was what was important. You know, and uh, it's an unfortunate, unfortunate thing that happened with the nation of Israel. Uh, that they became very religious instead of relational with God. Because God had always determined that it would be on the basis of their faith in him, that relationship would be. 
And of course, because of the, of the fact that they were so in tune to the law, they began to determine this was the basis of their righteousness and their relationship with God. Even though the word never says that. It never even implies that. And we'll see in a moment as Paul will ask the obvious question that any one of us would be asking, then what's the purpose of the law? If the law is not there in order for us to be able to have a standard of righteousness by which we can have relationship with God, then what's the purpose of it? And he will answer that here in just a little bit. Okay, But the fact is, is that it cannot be annulled. The covenant cannot be annulled. Uh, because, uh, even though the law had come in. For verse 18, if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of the promise. God gave it to Abraham by promise. So he makes it very clear that you can't have both. It can't be law and faith. So verse 19, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgression till the seed should come down to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. So here we, we see, Paul says, he asked that question. Obviously, others would ask, and certainly I would have if I hadn't have been, if I didn't know. It was added because of transgression. So the purpose of the law was because of transgression. Iniquity, sin, and transgression, these are all things that are a part of human nature. Before the law came, people were sinful, and the law came to identify that problem. I always, one of my favorites uh, of Paul, when he points to uh, the law and the purpose of the law, and it's showing us our sin, there in Romans, when he says, I would not have known covetousness if the law had not said that you should not covet. And I'm always intrigued by that. Why did he choose that particular law as an example? Could it be that Paul realized after coming to faith in Christ how covetous he was? I think so. Uh, you know, I, I think as we go through Galatians, uh, we'll see, we'll take note of the fact that, that Paul was a guy that really was one of the top guys and wanted to be the top guy. He coveted that, that position. You know, I don't know that Paul was that crazy about, uh, you know, wealth, but power? Oh, yeah. He wanted power. He wanted that power. You know, his persecution of the church was to demonstrate to the Sanhedrin that he was a zealot, that he was the one who was willing to protect and to guard Judaism, to put people to death for this false belief in the Messiah. And so it could be that that was his heart. But here's the thing. The law identifies the problems that we have. You're always speeding. It was only when somebody put up a sign that said that it's 55 mile an hour speed limit that you realized that you were speeding. Have you ever, uh, ever gone down the street not knowing what the speed limit is? And you see the speed limit sign, you go, oh my gosh, I didn't realize it was that low, right? I mean, there's certain things we know, right, in a residential area, it's 25 miles an hour and so on and so forth. And so we kind of get an idea of what it is, but every once in a while, something surprised me. I, I'll tell you one that really surprises me. South Watt. 
from Folsom Boulevard all the way down to Florin, it is a 55 mile an hour speed limit there, a two lane highway is 55, which I think is perfectly fine. I wish everybody else would figure it out and quit doing 40, <laughs> right? That's the speed limit, right? I mean, I have a hard enough time just doing 55, so come on, give me a break, at least do that, right? But the fact is, is that oftentimes we find that, that we're breaking the law only after we've broken the law and it's brought to our attention, just like it is with a, with a speed limit like that. And it, it doesn't mean that it slows you down when you find out what the speed limit is. It just means now you know that you're speeding. The law doesn't take away sin, and it doesn't give life. A lot of the old scholars love to compare it with a mirror. And when you look in the mirror and you see your face is dirty, you don't take the mirror off the wall and use it to wash your face. Right? It just reveals that you, that you have a dirty face. And, and so you have to use water and soap in order to, you know, to wash it off. But you, you don't use the mirror. It reveals your dirt. And that's the law. You don't use the law to cleanse you. You can't be cleansed by the law. It reveals that you're dirty. And you have to use God's word, his Holy Spirit, all of this in order to be cleansed and purified through faith in Jesus Christ. Because even without, without faith, you can try to use the word, you can do all those things, and it won't cleanse you. It's only when you have faith in Christ, then it cleanses you. The law identifies the problem because of transgressions. Iniquity, uh, in, uh, excuse me, the law identifies a problem because of transgression, it says here. Iniquity is equal to, in both the Old and New Testaments, speak of being twisted, being warped. That is human nature. It is twisted. And if you don't believe me, just go home tonight and turn on the news before you go to bed. You look at these things and you wonder, you know, how could it be? I mean, the, the things that are happening today, uh, I, I don't really understand how a person can do the things that they do, you know? How can someone molest children? How can they beat an elderly woman and take her goods? How can somebody just drive by a house and spray bullets all over it, killing innocent people without regard to who's being hit? Well. And what's, all, what's up with all that sex stuff, too? All the weird stuff they got, we got going on. You look at all the stuff that's going on out there in the world, and it's obvious that the world is iniquitous. It is full of iniquity. We're seeing it more and more as, as restraint is being lifted off. The, the obvious nature of man is coming to the surface more and more all the time. You know, it, one of my favorite expressions about dealing with people and, and trying to, you know, bring some order and rule and direction in their life is that when you're, when you're telling people different things that they need to do, uh, and as long as somebody is watching them, they're willing to obey. But as soon as somebody takes their eyes off them, then they go to do whatever they want to do. 
And my expression is, you never know how far a dog will run until you take him off a leash. And that's the truth. And that's what we're seeing today within our culture. The leash has come off. And as the leash has come off, people are just going absolutely bonkers, insane. Oh, maybe it's like being turned over to a debased mind. What do you think? It's possible, huh? So, um, human beings are twisted and warped, and there's something wrong by their very nature. What time, uh, what time, what, what time does it produce sin? And what time does it produce sin? Sin means to miss the mark. God has a standard that human beings do not measure up to. And that is sin. And the way they prove that is by transgression. God draws a line and says, don't cross this. Thou shalt not or thou shalt not. And people step across. That's what this word means, transgression, is to step across that to go across that line which God has measured out. The manifestation of our nature, which is twisted, presents itself in sin, and it acts out in transgression. And he says this, that this is why the law was given, to mark out transgression. So we would know that we have sinned. So we know that our face is dirty, if you will. So we know that we are speeding. Uh, the law doesn't give life, and the law doesn't solve the problem. It identifies the problem. And here's what Satan wants to do. He wants you to prove that you can be righteous by keeping the law. Here it tells us that God gave us the law to prove that we are sinners, not to prove that we are righteous. The proper use of the law is to reveal our need for Christ. The law has a place in our life. And we'll see here in a minute, as Paul will tell us about the fact that it is a tutor. It is someone who teaches, and I'll define that for you quite a bit more tonight as we go through this. But the law is good. It's good, and it's good in, in our life, too. Even as a believer, how do I know that I'm getting off track and I am beginning to sin? and going in a direction the Lord doesn't want me to go. Well, his word tells me that. And I mean, you can equate the word with the law, right? I mean, if you look at it, uh, you know, there's the, the law of the Old Testament, the uh, Ten Commandments, all those things. And, and even in those, I always love to ask someone, you know, which, which one of the Ten Commandments, when they say that we're not under the law, we don't need to obey the Ten Commandments. Well, I say, well, which one don't you want to obey? You know, which one is it that you, you don't want to obey? That, actually, I think the one that they really don't want to obey is the one that says that you shall have no other gods before me. They really want to have, they want to be their own God and they want to determine what is right and what is wrong and that's why they want to reject all of the law uh, in the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments has a place, not, a, not that we live under it or that it is... Um, you know, something that we determine whether or not we're right or wrong in our relationship with God through the keeping of those Ten Commandments. But they have a place. They're good, they're good stuff, you know. You know, do not, do not lie. Don't bear false witness. Don't, you know, don't, don't covet your neighbor's wife. Don't cover, covet his things. You know, all those different things. Those, those are laws that, that a lot of people give no regard to today, right? Especially non-Christians. So God forbid that we would not give regard to that. 
The world we're living in today, everybody wants to see a psychologist, everybody wants behavior modification, everybody wants to feel good. They say, um, they don't, uh, they say, don't talk to them that way uh, because it'll hurt their self-esteem. No, the Bible says that you are sinners. The Bible says that you are offending a holy God. The Bible says you are lost without Jesus Christ. Here is, the, here is the law, everybody, and, and everybody breaks it. You have no hope, but Jesus Christ is the answer to that problem. And that we, can, we, that we can have forgiveness, that God loves us so much that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That should give us all the self-esteem that we need. That should take the weight of the world off of us. We don't need a psychologist to do that. We need Christ to set us free. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. I'm not against counseling. Biblical counseling is very important. But if it's not pointing me to the, the, very, the very foundation of my problem, then it's not going to have an effect upon me. And if it does, it certainly is not going to have the effect that God desires, which is to lead me to eternal life. There is a problem with those who end up with counseling, psychological counseling, and they get their life all straightened out. You know, God uses our messed up life in order to be able to show us that we have a need for Christ. Right? That, that's what, it, what he does. I mean, I, I don't know about you guys. I can only speak for myself because I didn't, I didn't save you, you know. I I got saved by myself when the Lord revealed to me that I was a 22-year-old drunk and that I needed a Savior. And that's all I was going to be unless I gave my life to Him. He didn't, he didn't you know, make it soft touch, you know, say, hey, you know, Bob, you got, a, you got an addiction here and, uh, you know, you might need some help. You know, the Lord is very clear about it. I had a problem. I was a drunk. And I needed salvation in order to overcome it. And by his power and by his might and by his word, I was able to do that. No glory to me, but all to him. And, I, and God doesn't like to share his glory, by the way, with anybody or anything. It's all about him. He wants to work in a person's life to where they turn to him, and then they stand up and they give testimony to what a great and awesome God he is for what has been done. Verse, um, verse 20, it says, Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. So Paul shows that the promise is superior to the law, for the promise was given directly from God to Abraham, whereas the law was given to Israel uh, by God through a mediator. And, you know, if you know anything about Judaism, uh, I mean, Moses was their main guy. He was the lawgiver. He was the one they all looked to. And actually, they did look to Abraham, but they didn't look to Abraham for guidance like they did to Moses. And if they would have looked to Abraham first and found faith, then they would know how to balance the law within their life. David, for all his shortcomings, he was a guy in the Old Testament that really understood. He understood the grace, the mercy, and the love of God, and by faith that he had that relationship with God. It wasn't through the law. He was a lawbreaker. He knew he was a lawbreaker. He got busted big time. And he really knew he was a lawbreaker. But he also knew that God 
forgave him. And Nathan the prophet told him that he would be forgiven. Uh, but there would be consequences for his sin. And so uh, God's always wanted that relationship with his people through faith, not through the law. Verse 21, is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. So that question is asked here, is the law against the promises of God? The answer is that the law and the promises are not in conflict because each has a distinct function. The law is a ministry of condemnation. The promises are a ministry of salvation. The law judges a person on the basis of obedience or disobedience. The, promise, the promises judge man on the basis of faith. The law, whose ministry is one of condemnation, was not intended to express God's attitude towards man. God's attitude towards man is one of grace. The law is not the basis of God's judgment of man. A sinner who rejects Christ goes to the lake of fire for all eternity, not because he has broken God's laws, for, for his sin is paid for. He goes to a lost eternity because he rejects God's grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. The law is a revelation of the sinner's legal standing and as such condemns him. It cannot therefore justify him as the Judaizers claim to him to be able to do. In verse 22, it says, but the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. You know, Romans 3.23, a very familiar verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That, that for all, everyone has fallen short. And the scripture puts everybody in the same standing before God. You're either a sinner, unredeemed, or you're a saint that is by faith redeemed through Jesus Christ. You're in one of two categories. There is no middle ground in between there. You're not almost a saint. You either are or you ain't, right? And so you have to make that choice by faith. But the word of God puts us all on equal ground, both on both sides of that equation. And he'll tell us that here in just a moment. He's going to tell us about there are neither Jews nor Greeks nor, you know, I forgot already, but anyways, we'll hit it here in a minute, and I'll tell you. But the fact is, is that it puts us all on even ground. We're all on equal standing before God. Uh, based upon our faith in Jesus Christ and not based upon our righteousness through the keeping of the law. <clears throat> Verse 23, but before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. So before faith, we were kept under lock and key by the law. That's what the law's purpose was, kept us under lock and key. Uh, but then once faith was revealed afterward, that's when we have been set free. Verse 24, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So when you look at this word tutor, our, our first tendency is to think of a teacher. Uh, like somebody, you know, we have kids that have problems with math. So what do we do? We hire a tutor in order to help them, in order to be able to overcome it. So 
This is not what it means here, though. The Greek word here is pedagogos. I hope I got that right. You can check me later. Uh, and the word actually means boy guider. A person appointed, he was a person appointed to watch over a young child to train his public behavior and keep him safe in public. The slave employed by ancient Greek and Roman families as a guardian for boys under the age of 16, the conventional age of maturity. These custodians would take the male children to school or to gymnastic exercises, guide their behavior, and thus train them to become responsible adults. They were not educators. They were not teachers in the sense of like school teachers and that kind of thing. As a matter of fact, the, this guy would actually take the boy to a school, would wait for him there, and then once he was done, he would bring him back home and take him to other activities. And he was really, uh, he becomes, uh, uh, you know, like a big brother to him. And these, these guys were, usually they became very close to the family very close to the children, okay? Now, sorry, ladies, there was no such thing for girls. Uh, women, uh, girls were, were taught in home, uh, and they had no opportunity to go to school, and they did not have uh, one of these guys to follow them around. But uh, Paul compares the law to such a custodian, training believers to accept the Lord in faith. That's, that was the tutor, that was the job of the law, to train us in faith, to bring us to faith, to reveal to us our need for a savior. And once you come to that point, well then you can cry out to the Lord and be filled with the Holy Spirit and, and, and have that, that, the bondage of, being, of the confines of being in the bondage to the law broken. Whom the Lord sets free is free indeed. Whom the Son set free is free indeed. Verse 25, but after faith has come, we no longer, we are no longer under a tutor. Once we accepted Christ, we are no longer under that tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So with the, the whole idea of the tutor in mind, there's another aspect of all of that that takes place that explains where, what Paul is talking about here when he says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Okay, the idea here is once coming to faith in Christ, you've been set free. You're no longer under the, that, that tutelage. Now you've been set free from that. When you get saved, the Bible says that you are uh, baptized by the Spirit into the mystical body of Christ. And then baptism in water is a reflection of those truths. Once we get saved, we are, we are baptized into the body. And then as we continue on in obedience to Christ and we are water baptized, it's simply a reflection of those things that have already been taking place. It is the outward expression of the inward change that has been taking place within our lives. So, well that was cute. <laughs> so, he says that if you have been baptized into Christ, then you have put 
on Christ. Once you have become a, a, a believer in faith, then you have put on Christ. Well, going back to our example of the tutor, when a boy would come of age, he would put off his garments, which he wore, and would put on a toga with a stripe on it, which signified that he was now a full-fledged heir of his family's fortunes. So when people saw him, when he walked down the street, you know, it was obvious that he, he was a man now. He was of age, and he was the heir of his family's fortunes. And how did you know that? Well, because he wore a toga, and it had a stripe on it, and that would signify these things to be true. So he is using this imagery that if we have Christ, that we have put on Christ, and then we have that full inheritance of the kingdom that comes through Christ in our life as well. So this is, this is the imagery that Paul is using. He's, he's speaking to them in a way that they totally understood. They knew what he meant when he said that the law was a tutor. He didn't have to go into this big definition of the Greek word and all that kind of stuff. Everybody knew what that was. So as he's using these examples, they're following along, and they know that, that this is the case in their life, that they're not under the bondage of the law anymore. Paul is making this great defense against the Judaizers who are coming in and trying to bring them under bondage, bondage that God did not intend for anyone to be under. Whether it's Old or New Testament, it doesn't matter. God never intended that men would be under the bondage of the law, but that the law would reveal to them their need for God. And that through that, men would repent and turn. And we have examples of Old Testament and especially New Testament saints that, that practiced that, that knew that. And so it is too. And, uh, you know, it's an interesting thing even after all these years uh, and all the discussion and all the teaching and everything else is about, it's still an issue within the body. There are many people who get caught up in the, the whole idea that if I'm not living up to the standard of the law, then I'm failing God. Well, guess what? You failed God by trying to live up to the standard of the law. You know, the idea here is that we just let the Holy Spirit work in us and do the things that he wants to do because he will guide us and direct us. Remember I had said weeks ago that we, when we were talking about this that, you know, the, the law of faith is a much higher standard than the, law of, uh, than the law of God. It's much higher because by faith I believe God and now I have to seek God and let his Holy Spirit minister to me. That tells me even when I'm in an area where the speed limit is, is 45 and I'm doing 55, that the Holy Spirit is saying, slow down. Well, maybe not like that. I never listen. The Holy Spirit never tells me to slow down. He may tell you guys to slow down, but he doesn't speak to me that way. Remember, let me remind you, always please continue to pray for my right hand and my, left, and my right foot so they enter into the kingdom of heaven with me, right? That I don't have to leave them behind. Uh, you know, sinful little things as they are. Uh, but, you know, the truth is, is that, that God has always wanted that, that relationship. And I don't know about you, I get pretty excited about that. Because it's so freeing. And here, you know, the Judaizers were coming in and trying to bring these guys back under bondage, uh, you know, under bondage. And, and Paul, I am certain, with the, the presentation of the gospel that he presented to them, as he had started out, you remember in the beginning, he says, if anybody presents to you any other gospel than that which I have given to you, they are anathema. They are accursed. And he says, and if, in case you didn't get it, if anybody presents to you another gospel, 
than the one that I gave to you, they are anathema. They're accursed. Because Paul had presented to them that, that gospel of freedom, that gospel of, of being able to live life without being under the law as a restrictive measure in the sense that we would try to find salvation through it, or even righteousness. Now, I will say this, that as a believer in Christ, righteousness will present itself through us by our actions, what the things that we do. And that's where the word comes in. It's a guide, right? It's a lamp unto my feet and a guide unto my path. It is, it is the very thing that tells me when I'm going in the wrong direction. You know, as Paul says, I would have not known covetousness had it not been for the law that said that you shall not covet. Uh, you know, and, and how many times have we found ourselves in that same place? How many times have we, knowing the word of God and doing some action, we, got, we come under instant conviction because we know it's wrong because the word says that it's wrong. And Paul's going to balance all this. By the time we start getting over into the next chapter, and especially in chapters 5 and 6, Paul will lay all this out for us in, in this perfect balance of what it means to be a believer and to walk in freedom and not under the bondage of the law, but yet the law having an effect in our life for righteousness sake, not to give us righteousness, but to enable us to know when we're doing unrighteous things. So it still kind of teaches us as we go on. In verse 28, it says, For there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So Paul says here there is uh, racial, social, and sexual. Uh, there is no racial, social, or sexual distinctions when it comes to being accepted by God through faith in Christ. Now, there are those that try to use this to try to even out the whole playing field and saying there's just there's no difference. But that's not true. If you look through God's word and you find that he has an order, he has structure, he has determined what, how all that is to work. He has given, you know, given us instruction on how leadership is to function within the church. I mean, all these different things. And it has to do with men and women. And not, neither one of them are inferior to either, either each other they're equal but we have purposes and places in the in the in life and in the body of Christ that enable us to function as a church and as a culture to be honest with you and we see today in our culture they're trying to absolutely just the most bizarre things I've ever seen in my life you know where they're trying to totally wipe out any distinction from male and female be whatever you want to be it doesn't matter, you know. I think I've already told you guys, but I'm, I'm just so impressed with this little four-year-old girl. I have to tell you again, it's on a YouTube video uh, where this little girl is four, about four years old. She may even be a little bit younger than that. And she's standing by a skeleton, and she's pointing out to Steve Harvey all the various bones that are in the skeleton. And she works her way up from the feet, and she's going up, and names all the bone legs, or bone legs, leg bones, uh, that too. Uh, and then she gets to the pelvis, and she makes this statement. She says, that is the pelvis. It is the only gender-specific bone in the body. It's built, it's made for women to be able to bear children. 
A four-year-old knows the difference. But we have people who are much older who can't tell the difference between the two. We've really, it's, it's gotten pretty insane, to be honest with you. And this idea of trying to eliminate, which I, I see uh, is nothing more than the enemy trying to destroy the very foundation and fabric of, of the world's culture. Because it's not just here in the United States that this is happening, it's all over the world. And, and what it's trying to do is break down family, gender, sexuality, all these things. He's doing everything he can because, you know, when you look at it, what's one of the first things that God did in the book of Genesis? After he created the heavens, the earth, the stars, the moon, the sun, and everything else, he created Adam and the animals, and then he created Eve. And after he created Eve, he created family, right? And it really is... Uh, this is where the Orthodox Jews really get it right because they look at that passage there in Genesis where God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply as a command, not an option. It's not that you have a choice, even though there are many that make that choice today not to have children. But in God's eyes, the purpose of bringing a man and a woman together is to have godly offspring. You know, it's not just for them to have giggles and fun all the rest of their life. It is that they would have misery like the rest of us and have children. <laughs> I'm, hey, boy, I got I to gotta, I gotta make sure, and, I got to straighten that comment out right now. <laughs> and and I, you guys all know me. You know that I love kids, you know, so I'm just joking. You, you, and, and you all laughed. You know why? Because you got children and you understand that statement, man. And they can, they can really give you some difficulty in your life, right? Yeah, about that time is when you said, I wish I hadn't had no kids, right? But praise God you didn't uh, make that choice. But the truth is, uh, there are distinctions, and that's okay. It, it's, you know, when you think about this, it, when it says that there's neither Jew or, nor Greek, it, when we say there is no racial distinctions, uh, it, in, in regards to relationship with God, that is true, but absolutely there is. With, Within our world, there are. And I'm grateful for those. Because when I drive down the street, there's like 10 different restaurants of different ethnic foods. And I like to eat. So it's really good that I have this variety in my life, right? And that, it's true that, that when it comes to ethnicity, that it's wonderful that God has made us the, the what's that, potpourri uh, that we are in the world. Different people from different places and everything. You know, it's, it's a fantastic, it's a fantastic world that God has created. But none of that, none of that makes a difference when it comes to being accepted by God through faith in Christ. There is nothing that says that a Jew can be saved and a Gentile can't, or that a Jew is more saved than a Gentile. There's nothing that says that a Greek cannot be saved, which they were, they were pagans, you know, heathens. So... You can understand this. Understand the day in which this was written, the Judaizers, these men woke up each day saying their prayers, and this is what they'd say. I thank you, God, that I am not a Jew. Or, wait a minute, I am sorry. I thank you, God, that I am a Jew and not a Gentile. Thank you, God, that I am free and not a slave. 
And I thank God that I am a man and not a woman. So when Paul writes this statement that there is equity, when it comes to salvation and relationship with God, there's an equity there. God has no preference over <clears throat> men over women or Jew over Greek or anything else that we're all on that common ground. Common in the sense that we're all sinners saved by grace, right? And in the Greek and Roman world, women were abused and looked down on. And they said that this is what they said in this time, that every Roman man should have a legal wife to bear his legal children, a concubine for pleasure, and a mistress for adventure. This is what they thought about. Uh, well, it's, it's really not too different today, <laughs> you know? And when you think about it, uh, it really... It, it's, it really is so much. That was their philosophy. And women had no rights. Slaves had no rights. But Paul makes it clear that in Christ, those distinctions had no effect upon the person's relationship with God and the inheritance through Christ. Verse 29, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So indeed, we are in Christ, then we are the promised seed. We are part of a heritage that is over 4,000 years old. In Genesis 3.15, God spoke that to Adam and Eve in a garden, knowing that we would be sitting here right now. So don't get caught up in this world, uh, you know, thinking that it's something special. It is not. The world is passing away. In fact, it tells us in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So we're not to have our eyes upon this world. It is in the present condition of passing away. The world out there is unraveling. This is not our world. The kingdoms of men are falling apart. This is not our kingdom. We are heirs with Abraham. There is a kingdom that will be ours. There is a kingdom that will be uh, ours, and it is coming. It is a kingdom that should rule us now. It is a kingdom that should learn that we should learn to operate in the context of even while we are passing through this world as pilgrims, we are on a journey together. And on this journey, we are in the great company that has been on this pilgrimage for thousands of years. We will sit down at the table with Abraham and Jacob and Isaac. And on this pilgrimage, uh, it is hard. There is hardship. People get diseases and die. This is not heaven. This is earth. God has come into our lives and he has made us part of this great promise that he has made to Adam and to Abraham. And if we are in Christ, then we are in the midst of that promise. We have been made heirs. All the rights of the adult legal inheritor are ours. We have been made one to encourage one another, to stir up one another in love and good works because this is all temporary. It is not about this. 
It is about where we are going, and it is about you and I sharing the news with the lost and the dying world that the Scripture has placed the entire world under sin, and you and I have the message to see that change. I, I got to tell you, as we see how things are changing so rapidly, it really should inspire us uh, to know that we have the only hope that the world could possibly have. The only hope. And, and if, we, if we just hold that to ourselves, man, what are we going to say when we stand before the Lord? If we don't take and, and share with others about it, uh, no matter what they do, no matter what they say, no matter what they think, it doesn't matter. That's, that's not ours to determine. Ours is just to determine to do the will of God, to give the word of God to the lost, that they might hear it and have opportunity to choose. You may be that very one that as that person stands before God and they say, I never heard it. They say, wait a minute, no. I have one of my saints that shared the love of Christ with you and you rejected Christ. Or it may be that they stand before the Lord forgiven because you took that time in order to share with them how much God loved them. Let's be diligent about that in our lives. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. We love you so much, Lord. We love you for the great things that you do. Look forward to what you have for us, Lord, as we are children of God, children of Abraham. Lord, I know that there's great promises that you have and you intend to fulfill them all. And so, Father, thank you for that. Be with us now as we go. Lead us to someone who needs to hear the hope of the gospel. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. God bless you all.